listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. We will be in the book of Daniel, so you can turn to the book of Daniel if you have Daniel. And our subject this morning is starting a reformation. Uh, James just mentioned briefly that, that October and this year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, the Reformation in church history. This is an event that changed changed the world, really, uh, as the doctrines of justification by faith were, were re- rediscovered by the church. So we're going to talk about Daniel. I'm also going to introduce lots of kind of biographical information of some of these reformers and their examples for us. It's uh, really interesting to look at that. Let's just pray quickly and then we'll jump into the Word of God. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your Word. I pray now that you would just uh, anoint my mouth, Lord, that uh, we would lift up the Word of God and that Christ would be glorified through our actions here this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. So for the, for the Elevate Youth Conference, our theme was, we were looking at the theme of being an ambassador for Christ. That's what we were exploring. What it means for us as Christians, when God calls us his ambassadors, that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and we're representing that kingdom down here on earth and how that plays out in our lives and in society. And that's what we were exploring. And we're going to look at that with the life of Daniel and with the life of these reformers this morning. And we'll draw some application and principles from that. Now before we jump into the book of Daniel, let me just tell you a, a story from Greek history that gives us a good opening to where we want to go. It's from the Battle of Thermopylae. The Battle of Thermopylae is a famous battle in Greek history. Um, it was kind of dramatised in the movie 300, if any of you have seen that movie. That, that's the Battle of Thermopylae there, with artistic licence, obviously. What we have, 480 BC. Okay, so we're going back to 480 BC. East is on the move against the West. There is a colossal army. It's said to be the greatest army the world has ever seen at that point, pouring across from Asia into Europe. It's led by the fearsome Persian king, a guy called Xerxes. You'll find him mentioned in the Bible. It consists of armoured Persians, camel-riding Arabs, chariot-riding Libyans, Scythians, fifth and Scythian warriors, and many more warriors from all different tribes and nations around the world. It's said that the ground trembled for miles when this army marched. They devoured everything in their past. Every drop of water, every piece of food was just gone. They devoured the land like locusts as this million-strong army marched through the land. Xerxes was on a mission to avenge the defeat of his father Darius, and at the same time he wanted to subdue the Greeks and basically take over their their land into his kingdom. So the Greeks prepared a hasty kind of ragtag band of 7,000 men um, to stand against this million-strong army of the Persians. And at the core of this army were 300 Spartans. You might have heard of the Spartans. These were the fiercest of Greek warriors. Um, Spartan mothers used to say to their children, you come back with your shield or you come back on your shield. Okay, that basically means you come back in victory or you come back dead. That's the only way we want to see you returning. And that was how Spartans were trained. They were very, very fierce warriors. They were led by a man named King Leonidas, 35-year-old king. They decided to take their stand on a very narrow pass, um, 5,000-foot cliffs on one side, sea on the other. Um, The whole of the Persian army would have had to pass through this little piece of land, so that's where they decided to, to make their stand. And for two days, the unstoppable Persian forces were stopped by the Spartans and the Greeks. Xerxes sent his best warriors. They had a group of assassins called um, the Immortals. 
these were, and if you've seen the movie, you know these were the weird ones. And there was some really weird stuff said about these guys, but they were they were just trained mercenaries, very very fearsome. But even they were no match for the Spartans. The 300 Spartans held them off for two days, and they couldn't get through. On the second night, the Greeks were betrayed. Someone betrayed the Greeks, and they went to King Xerxes, and they told them that they could lead the Persian army up through the cliffs so you could get round behind the Greeks and that's what happened so the, the, the Greeks woke up the, third, the next morning and they were surrounded by the Persian army and they knew the game was up that death was coming Leonidas dismissed the rest of the army all the, the other Greeks who had joined him and he took his 300 to a little mound where they would make their last stand and they fought to the last man and they died it's said that when their swords were gone they fought with their hands and with their teeth and before they died they sent home a message And it said this, Stranger, tell the Spartans that we have behaved as they would wish us to, and we are buried here to this day. Tell the Spartans we have behaved as they would wish us to, and we are buried here. This was the last words of a a small band of Greeks who had no idea what they were doing or what was to come of their empire. It turns out that their example of courage and pride in in Greece triggered a surge of national pride and inspired the fellow Greeks to rise up and defeat the Persians in many decisive victories. Never again would the Persians menace the Greeks in such a way. And in fact, within 30 short years, Athens would rise to become one of the most influential cities in the history of the world. Now I say that because there's a challenge for us in that story. And this is the challenge. Will it be said of followers of Christ around the world and here in the UK of us today, stranger, tell our Lord that we have behaved as he would have us behave and we are buried here to this day. Because that's the calling of an, of an ambassador. That's what we need to think about as we go through. We look at the life of Daniel and we look at the life of these reformers and we'll see that that's how they lived and many of them today, that's how they died. We move into the threshold of the third millennium now. The church is confronting some of the greatest challenges it probably has ever faced. Uh, During our weekend, we looked at some of these. They're different challenges to what Martin Luther faced in the 16th century. They're kind of different to what the first century church faced. But the underlying issues are still the same. And we face them in the church today. And we need to rise up as ambassadors. You see, we're called to represent a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly king. Not like the Greeks, they had an earthly kingdom and they had an earthly king. Our calling is much, much higher than that. Now is the time to stand. Now is the time to behave as our Lord would have us. We need to live worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And here's the thing we need to understand. When we talk about living worthy of an ambassador for Christ, our behaviour is always directed by our beliefs. Okay. What we believe about something will influence the way we behave in regard to a particular thing. The, the, the expression, ideas have consequences. This is where this comes from. What you believe will influence the way you live, even if you don't believe it will. So now is the time to stand to believe, and now is, now is the time to believe what Jesus would have us believe. Now is the time to understand that our calling as ambassadors must be the most deepest and stirring and all-consuming passion in our lives. This is how we start Reformation, and we'll see this played out through history. You see, unlike the Greeks, God doesn't need our strength. Okay? God's not looking for 300 Spartans to stand, to stand against the armies of Greece, so to speak. All God is looking for is faithfulness. 
wherever you are placed by him. That's all he's looking for. You see, God will provide the strength if you are faithful and nothing shall stand before God. No one. That's it. You see, you remember David's mighty men in Scripture. Three, the three, you know, one of those mighty men could kill 300 soldiers. It was not a problem. God can do that. Now let's look at the life of Daniel and we'll see this playing out in his life. Let's set the context for you though. I'm sure some of you know the context of the book of Daniel. But let me just set the scene for you. Because remember in the, in the New Testament it tells us that whatever happened to Israel, whatever things were written for our instruction, uh, yeah, they were written so that we could learn from them. Okay, So that we can see the example of Israel and we can learn from it. That's why we have so much. You might wonder why your Old Testament is so large and your New Testament is so small. Okay, Because we're supposed to learn from everything in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that now. King Jehoiakim had just taken the throne in Israel. We read about this in Second Kings. I, we won't turn there and read all the narrative now. It says that he was an evil king. Okay, His father was a great king, but he was an evil king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Egypt was the ruling power at this time, but the, nation, uh, the kingdom of Babylon was rising up. The Babylonians were fierce and they were vicious people, and they ended up ruling the world under King Nebuchadnezzar at that time. Now, if you turn to Jeremiah 23, we'll just read a small passage of scripture to give you a glimpse of what it's like at this time under his reign. Because during the time of Jehoiakim, the prophet Jeremiah, okay, you notice there's a big book in your Old Testament called Jeremiah. It's one of the major prophets. A lot of, the, a lot of his prophecies are dealing with this time. He was sent to warn the king, to warn the kingdom of Judah, that they were on the brink of judgment because they constantly were disobeying the word of God. In Jeremiah 23, verse 10 to 12, uh, we read this of the situation in Judah. It says, For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Notice it says, The prophet and the priest were ungodly. The leaders of Israel... The very people who were supposed to be the ones responsible for making sure that the nation followed the word of God were the ones who had already fallen themselves. And as the leaders go, thus goes the nation. That's how it was in Israel. And they say that a nation gets the leaders it deserves. Okay, there's some, there's some truth in that. The ambassadors of Israel were not doing their job. And God's, this is why God is so severe on them. Because Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Okay, they had the best news ever. The coming Messiah was going to come through them. Okay? The saviour of the world was going to come. They were supposed to be a set apart and a holy people, different, so that people would look at them and say, what is it about the God of Israel? Okay? But they had failed. They had walked away. They had uh, capitulated to the culture and the evils around them. And God now brings them this prophet, Jeremiah, to say, you're on the brink of destruction. If you repent... That's absolutely, you know, there's always offer of repentance, there's always that time, and, and you know, we always need that. But the, at this time, and we see what the king does. In Jeremiah 26, 
Uh, this is the beginning of his reign. When Jeremiah comes to him, uh, I'll read to you verses 4 to 6. This is the prophet Jeremiah. He enters the temple in Jerusalem, that holy place, and he says this. He says, Thus says the Lord. Remember, the temple would be filled with all the dignitaries, all the people of Jehoiakim, this evil king. And he says, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Okay, Strong words, words of judgment, words to warn these leaders who were failing their nation. And then when everyone heard these words, it says in verse 8, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Okay, This is probably... The exact opposite of what this is, the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to hear the word of God, take the rebuke, repent, humble their hearts. But instead, hearing the word of God made them angry. And they said, You shall die, Jeremiah. Stop bringing us these words. It's an interesting thing. Okay? They didn't like what was being said. So they tried to shut up the messenger, basically. And I think this is huge parallels to our culture today. I don't like what you say, so you can't say it. Okay? And let's get some laws in place to make sure that you can't say it. It's exactly the same principle. A little later in Jeremiah chapter 36, again, Jeremiah is told to bring them another message, give them another chance. And he he says this time, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write what I'm saying on a scroll and bring it to the king. Uh, And he does that, he brings it to the king. The scroll of Jeremiah is then read uh, in the king's court by by one of Jeremiah's scribes. And this word so uh, annoys the king that as it's being read, he's taking this scroll and he's tearing it off and he's burning it at the same time. Okay, Absolute rebellion to the word of God here. He's burning the scroll of God. You see, someone who gets so angry at the words of God, and you probably see that you've seen this, someone who gets angry with the words of God is someone who is living in rebellion against God in their heart, whether they realise it or not. You see, and there is someone in this world, uh, in the spiritual world, called Satan, that does not want people to hear the word of God. And he will try and make sure and do everything he can to stop it. Here, King Jehoiakim, you must burn this before it gets to the people. I will not allow people to hear this word. We see this in our culture. We see this all the time. Oxford University. There was a big hoo-ha this last week because they, they banned the Christian Union from their Freshers' Week. Okay? Oxford University. The very motto of Oxford University is a Christian motto. I think it's let there be light or something like that or veritas or truth. It's, it's a phrase from the Bible. It was founded as a Christian institution to study the works of God. And now they're saying the Christian Union, there's been a part, you know, Freshers' Week. Everyone has a table in all the news, you know, all the clubs and things like that. It's, it's very harmless. But it was banned because it might cause potential harm to Freshers. Okay? Christian Union. Potential harm to Freshers. That's where we are. King Jehoiakim, take him away. You shall die. Stop the word of God. We don't want that. This is the culture that they had in Babylon, and I believe this is quite similar in many ways to our culture. A Christian charity just here in Kent, just this week, were kicked out of doing Christian assemblies. And if you've ever seen Christian assemblies, they're, they're usually very, I want to say tame, I don't want to demean what they do, but you know they, they understand that you have, they can't just go in there and preach the gospel. They have to work with the system and they, they do what they can do. Do. They're very non-offensive. However, at St. John's, uh, John's School in Kent, 
there was uh, a group called Cross Teach. They were coming in doing Christian assemblies. Uh, some of the parents were very upset about this, um, that their children were being exposed to extreme beliefs. One unnamed parent told the Telegraph they were being told that they would not go to a good place when they died unless they believed in God. Okay, this is the Christian gospel. Okay, this is anyway, this is not even about our views on marriage or any of these things. This is just the gospel. And this is now an extreme belief. Okay? And this was a Christian school. It was a Church of England school. Okay? You understand that Christian doctrine is now not allowed in Church of England schools. You see, one of the things I tried to do over the weekend with the young people was to teach them about this thing that's called the new tolerance. Okay, that's what it's being dubbed, the new tolerance or cultural tolerance. And it manifests itself in many ways, the words equality, tolerance, British values, all of these things, they mean the same thing. It ends up being a very extremely intolerant view. You see, I was trying to show them to understand what has happened and why the simple Christian assembly is now classed as an extreme view. What has happened? Tolerance, you need to understand this, what it used to mean, and what the traditional what it does mean in the dictionary definition is this you recognise and respect when you don't share people's values, beliefs and practices you still recognise and respect them as people Okay, that's what traditional tolerance means Christianity works within that worldview. so do all the other worldviews. however really in the last 10 years the generational shift when the word tolerance is used, you know, we always have this push, don't we? Equality, tolerance, equality, tolerance. That's not what they mean anymore, okay? The word has changed, and this is what it means now. It says that you recognise and respect that every individual's values, truth claims, beliefs, and practices are equally valid, okay? It's a subtle difference, I admit, but it's a very, very key difference because what happens under the new tolerance... Orthodox Christianity now violates that view because we have an exclusive truth claim. We claim Jesus is the only way to heaven. Therefore, we do not consider the claims of other religions equally valid. Okay. Now, the tolerance should mean that we can obviously work in an environment where we have different viewpoints. Of course we can. But under the new tolerance now, Christianity is now violating the new tolerance. Therefore, we are classed as intolerant by, by definition. Okay, by the very definition. Regardless of whether we're acting just in, in, the, in the best way as ambassadors we can, we're not purposely causing offence to anyone, simply by the definition and the way the word games have happened, we are intolerant. And therefore you can now get Christians out of supposedly Christian schools. And what they're saying is now classed as an extremist view. And what will happen as that goes on is soon it will be you're not even allowed to hold those views. That's what will happen. It, under the new definitions, that's what has to happen if they're consistent. Okay, so you, uh, this is, I went at pains, probably overdid it really, to try and explain to the young people that this is what's happened in their generation. And this is why parents and young people are obviously not communicating. Because when they say you're being intolerant, one person's operating on the old definition, the younger people are operating on the new definition. And there's just no communication there. And that's why we have this huge confusion in our culture in a lot of ways. What it basically means, the new tolerance, the people who decide what the new tolerance means, the people who write our British values and these kind of things, British values that have existed for the last 10 years, it basically means everything is okay as long as you agree with what we say is okay. That is honestly, I'm not joking, that is what it ends up playing out with. And if you do not agree with us, you have violated the new tolerance, you are intolerant, and therefore we have a legal right to shut you up. Burn the scroll. 
you shall die. Get him out of here. It's exactly the same kind of thing. You see, that is a culture that is already in captivity. Okay, or on the verge of captivity. Like Jeremiah sent to the nation of Israel, you're on the verge. You need to heed the words of the prophet. Okay, and this is, I believe, the same that the Lord would say to us today. You are on the verge, or you are already in captivity on these things. This is what happened. It was the ultimate rejection. King Jehoiakim, the leader, he burnt the scroll. And we know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon razed Jerusalem to the ground. He invaded that city, he destroyed the temple, he carried away their people, he carried away the Jews as slaves to Babylon, and he took away (coughs) their belongings, their holy vessels from the temple. One of these young slaves who was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon was the man, Daniel. Or at this stage he was a teenager actually, he was about 16 probably. The teenager, Daniel. So let's turn to the book of Daniel and let's read verses 1 to 7. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the house of his God, and he uh, brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them... From the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshech. And to Azariah, Abednego. So they took the vessels from the holy temple of Jerusalem and they placed them in the temple of one of their gods, Marduk. And it says that they took the finest stock, the good-looking ones, the young ones, the intelligent ones, the brightest promise of this nation that was now in captivity. It took them back and they educated them and they were to be trained to serve in Babylon. Okay, And you understand what's going on here. You teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. You re-educate them and you indoctrinate them into our way of life and make them forget where they came from. This is basically what's happening here. You need to remove their national identity, you need to remove their loyalty to the God of Israel, and you need to replace their religion. Okay, you replace it with this is what's going on behind the names. Daniel, Hananiah, all these Hebrew names, all of them mean things like God is my judge. They all have a reference to the God of Israel in them. Names were very important in Middle Eastern culture at that time. They always spoke about who you worshipped or your character. And then he changes them into these other names that reference Babylonian gods. Okay, so he's severing, he's trying to sever all ties with their old life and with their own God, restoring, uh, removing the foundations. He does this intellectually through education, he does it socially. You now eat the king's best food, you're given jobs in the king's courts, and you enjoy, you enjoy the entertainment that Babylon has to offer, and religiously. You don't work, you don't, no, no, it's our gods now. That's basically how it is. 
This is very, this is, we need to learn from this. Satan uses very similar strategies against believers today. He wants to indoctrinate us into the world system. He wants us to feed on what the world offers, and he wants us to identify ourselves in reference to the world. Okay? Whereas our identity is found in Christ, because we're citizens of a different kingdom. Our politics is not of this world. But if he can get you to identify with something in this world, whether it be a social group or a job or all the different things that can be used, he can re-educate you in that sense. And he wants to educate ourselves in the ways of the world. Okay? And we need to be aware of what's called the myth of secular neutrality. Okay? And what I mean by that is, we're often told in this country, aren't we, faith is a private thing. My faith is private to me. As long as I keep it within my home, that's absolutely fine. But unfortunately, an all-consuming passion like knowing the king of the universe does not stay private. <laughs> it cannot and it will not. This is his earth. Okay? But... Because of that, we seem to sometimes operate, and this is what secularism would like to tell us, that there's this neutral ground in the middle, and that's where education and politics and everything is working. It's this neutral ground. And we're over here, Christians, you maybe got some Muslims over there, and everyone's just in their nice little categories, and all the important things get taken to the neutral ground in the middle, and that's where public policy gets worked out. Okay? That's a lie. Okay? It just doesn't happen like that. Everyone has a worldview, and this plays out in the decisions that are being made. Neutrality is a myth. You are either for me or against me, God says, even if you don't know it. And a lot of people don't know it. You know, of course, then they are getting on with their lives. It's a busy world. But this is what happens. Because behind the scenes, we know there's a different battle going on. And it can happen without even realising it. It's been said that one of the most useful tools in the quest for power is the educational system. Okay. It's been said that the philosophy of the classroom, listen to this, the philosophy of the classroom in this generation will be the philosophy of life in the next generation. Okay. They teach them moral relativism now. There are no truths. You choose your own truths. And what do we see being played out in the culture? Why do you think British values, they want to start it when you're four or five? Okay, under the new definition of the new tolerance and all these different things. Because by the time those people get out and they become the decision makers... The philosophy of the classroom is now what they're living out in the world. This is what happened in back. Re-educate them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Remove their foundations from the God of Israel, and when you remove the foundations, you replace it with something else. Okay, that's just what happens. Let me read you a quote by a humanist called John Dunphy. Now, Daniel, at the time of Babylon, obviously they had very obvious gods like Marduk and Baal and all these different people. Um, we're more subtle here. You know, we have, again, this, this neutral myth that, that, that secularism is neutral or humanism and all these different terms that people come up with that sound good. You know, the British Humanist Society and they're, they're advocating for, you know, separation of, of church and state and all these issues. And, this, you know, some of what they do is great um, in some respects. But there's, there's no neutral ground like that. It just doesn't work like that. Listen to humanist John Duffney. He'll, he's very honest in this quote. He says, I'm convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilising a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the education level, 
preschool, daycare or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. Listen, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with all its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism, resplendent in its promise of a world in which the never-realised Christian ideal of love love your neighbour will finally be achieved. Okay? Very, very important quote. We need to understand what's going on here. When you look back through the history of education, these are the guys who directed a lot of the way things are done and the way things go. Okay? Christian teachers... Don't underestimate your role there, okay? You're a fly in the ointment, so to speak. Okay, you have, you have a very important role as ambassadors there in these kind of environments with the, with the work that you do. This is the true colours. And you can see the parallels to Babylon. Okay, you, right, you go right back to the Tower of Babel, where man said, you know, we don't want to follow God, we're going to come together and we'll build our own tower up to God. Okay, and we'll do it, do it our way. Listen to that quote. The never realised Christian ideal of love your neighbour. Okay? That's what people are still, that's the kind of the goal, so to speak. You know, the world peace thing, it's, it's the goal, yet it takes out one very, well, two very crucial things. One, it doesn't acknowledge what the Bible says about man, that we are sinful. Okay? Man is sinful. Just watch the news, just look around, it's not hard to see. In your own lives, we all know it, the mistakes that we all make all the time. And the second thing is, you're never going to have the Christian ideals fulfilled without the Christ who made them. Okay? Why does he call himself the King of Peace? The Prince of Peace? Because it's only when he is ruling that you will have peace. Okay, so when you get organisations, we see this, coming together, trying to do Christian things without recognising the Christ, that's exactly what happened at Babylon. We'll come together and we'll build a tower up to God and God said, you're not listening to me and he changed the languages and he scattered them across the earth. Okay, this is what, this is what will happen. However, now this can sound like a lot. I, mean, I don't want to overwhelm you. This, you know, how do we, what do we do? What do we do about this? Okay, the answer is very simple and we're going to see that now in the life of Daniel. Okay, it doesn't take much. Let's look at verse 8, please, in the book of Daniel. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander and the officers that he might not defile himself. And here we probably have the best spiritual lesson. Really, you have the foundation of any revival, any reformation that you ever want starts with what Daniel did right here. He made up his mind. Some translations there will read, he purposed in his heart, he made a volitional choice that he would not compromise the word of God, even being in the midst of the most pagan culture on the world at that time. Being in their courts and in their kings, as many of his fellow countrymen did take the food that was offered to them. Daniel just said, and his friends, no. He'd already gone into that situation knowing his convictions. And this is a good example for us as Christians. Because we're going to face temptations in this life. We're going to be put in situations in this culture where there will be a choice. Do we follow the word of God or do we go against it? If we're not sure what we're going to do when that temptation comes, the chances are we probably won't do the right thing. If we already know that the word of God is placed where it should be as the highest authority in this world then we're more likely to follow it. But we have that in our heads before we even go in to the battle. 
sounds simple, I know it's, it's hard and practical, but this is the example of Daniel. He made a volitional choice, because it says he chose not to defile himself. Now, that, what that's pointing to is the, the Hebrew people at this time, they had their food laws, and they call it the kosher food laws, that were outlined in the book of Leviticus. Okay, so what it's basically saying is he wanted to obey the word of God where his food laws were found, and he didn't want to eat the finest kings, and, and you know the story, he's allowed to not do that, and he ends up being healthier than all the rest anyway. But this is what controlled him. Okay? He refused the king's food because of his knowledge of the word of God. Okay? It was because of his commitment to the word of God. So we know Daniel was a man of the word. You go to Daniel chapter 9 a little bit later and you see him pondering what's happening now with the captivity. And you see him and he's sitting there and he's studying the prophet Jeremiah. He's studying the word of God to find out what's going to happen to his nation. You see, we need to reclaim the authority of the word of God. Firstly, in our own lives, because we're the ambassadors, we're the ones who are, who are supposed to influence, we're the salt and light in this nation, you know, and we all admit we don't do that too well too often, do we? But God's, you know, again, God doesn't need strong people. It's not about our conduct necessarily, it's about our faithfulness. And as we submit ourselves to the authority of the word, God will work through that. This is the word of God. We need to feed on it, understand it's important to us. Let me read to you a quote about the word of God that you'll often find in the front of old Gideon Bibles. It says, This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, and its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. This is the word of God. Okay, I believe we've lost that understanding in our culture. We go back, we talk about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Okay? There was a man named William Tyndale in the 16th century. He was a scholar, first-rate scholar. He wanted to try and he, he was vexed by the fact that the church services, the Catholic Church at this time, wouldn't have the Bible in the common tongue. They, Latin, everything was done in Latin. English people couldn't really understand, the common people couldn't understand Latin. He said, I want to translate the Bible into English so that everyone can read it. The man who's pulling the plough as well as the man in the, in the church. Okay? That was his mission. He dedicated his life to that. He translated the first Bible into English in 1525. Okay? He's the reason we have our Bibles today. All of our Bibles come from that original work that Tyndale did. He did this at great cost. He was a fugitive, always on the run, with a bag of manuscripts and books, translating by candlelight. The English church was chasing him, the English king was chasing him, the Roman Catholic agents were chasing him. Eventually he was betrayed by someone who told, told the authorities where he was. He was arrested, accused and condemned as a heretic for translating the Bible, and he was delivered over to the authorities. Finally, in 1536, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square, 
He was given his final chance to recant, as you always were, and he refused. And he famously uttered these last words where he said, Lord, would you open the King of England's eyes? He was then brought to the beam, noose goes around the neck, flame gets lit, uh, lit underneath him, and he was strangled and burnt to death in the square. Lord, would you open the King of England's eyes? He was an ambassador who was faithful to the end. His impact on the world is immeasurable. Okay? This was a faithful ambassador, faithful to the end. Think back to those Spartans, what we gave that challenge. Stranger, tell Christ that I have behaved as he would have us behaved, and I'm buried here this day. William Tyndale understood this. We all owe him a debt. Who here has a Bible? Hold up your Bibles for me. Hold up your Bibles. Every one of us owes a debt to William Tyndale for what we have there. That's that's, That's him that did that, and he gave his life for that Bible. God doesn't require the strong, he just requires the faithful. And yet we see more of God's providential hand in the work of William Tyndale. You see, that first Bible translation, he needed a place of refuge. You know, it's hard work doing a Bible translation, particularly in those days. He needed somewhere where he could be unmolested by the authorities long enough to translate it. And he found that refuge in a place called Worms, a city in Germany. Okay, It was in that city that four years earlier, Martin Luther... The, the, you know, everyone knows that the work, Martin Luther, the, the founder almost of the Reformation, that he made his famous stand. Okay, he was one of the first people that started questioning the authority of the Catholic Church and the way that they were misinterpreting the Bible. He did a translation of the Bible into German for his people. He started writing the books, and he, he understood that it was only by grace that you're saved, not by works. This big thing, this transformed the world. Really, that was Martin Luther. Now the church were not happy with him and he was summoned before this council at Worms. All the leaders of the church, even the emperor was there at this point. He was brought to a table, his books were placed in front of him and he was said, do you recant of the works in those books? Okay, will you submit again to the authority of the popes? And one of those books, interestingly enough, was called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The Babylonian captivity of the church. In his day, he understood that the church was captive to this organisation of the popes and this system that was abusing the people, basically, at this time. That was their captivity. We have a different sort of captivity today, but we have captivity nonetheless. And what did it take? This is what Martin Luther said. He says, Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That was Martin Luther. Martin Luther. An amazing event in church history. Changed the world, literally. His conscience was captive to the word of God, like Daniel. His mind was made up that it was the word of God that was going to be the ruling thing. Why does it say, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path? The picture we get is of our feet following the light in the darkness. Okay, That's what it is. And obviously the lesser light of the scriptures point to the greater light of Jesus. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. This is what it's talking about here. This is what it's talking about. 
This is the mind of an ambassador. We need to stand firm on the word of God because it's the only sure foundation that we have. Like Daniel, we make up our mind that we don't compromise. And when we do this, we see the Spirit of God work. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British preacher, a lot of you probably know of him, he says this, We can be perfectly certain that the Church lost her authority and power the moment she ceased to firmly believe in the authority of the Word of God. We can be certain the Church lost its power the moment she ceased to believe in the authority of the Word of God. Okay? For Martin Luther and those guys, the issues were the sacraments, salvation by faith, For us, it plays out in different issues. We have certain issues that are litmus tests of God's design for certain things. There are other issues that we have. We have humanism, we have uniformitarian science interpreting the Bible. Hundreds of issues. Whatever they are, they all come back to one foundational point. What is your authority? Is it the Word of God? If it's not the Word of God, it's man. Okay? You're right back to the Tower of Babel. We'll do it ourselves. We'll build our own tower right back to the humanist education system. We're going to fulfill the Christian ideals, but we're going to do it on our own way, without Christ. It's exactly the same. There's not many different ploys of Satan. The deception is all the same, and he just replays them over different ways. We don't need to try and figure them all out. All we need is to make up in our minds where our authority lies, and it's in the Word of God. Our moral convictions and practice as Christians come from the Bible, not from the wisdom of the Babylonians. That's the first foundational principle. That's what the Reformation was really built on. Let me share you another example played out in the life of one of these Reformation. This is from, well, this is a lady called Lady Jane Grey. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. She was king, queen of England, sorry, for about nine days in this country. Lady Jane Grey. I wanted to include one of the female martyrs of the Reformation because you often hear Martin Luther and all these great guys, but there's equally good stories about the women and their work in the Reformation. This is one of my favourite ones, Lady Jane Grey. He says, so she was on the throne for about nine days. After Henry VIII died in the UK, now it was, in, it was Henry VIII who started the Anglican Church. Okay, he split England from the power of the Pope, and he did it for selfish reasons. <laughs> you know, he wanted a divorce um, from one of his many wives. The Pope wouldn't give it to him, so he said, "All right, I'll start my own church." Not a holy reason there, but yet God still used it. It separated this country and allowed the Reformation ideas to spread in this country. After him, his young son Edward took the throne. He was very young at the time, so it was really the council of surrounded people he had around him who took the nation in a more Protestant direction at this time. And he was favourable to the Reformation. So Edward, before he left and or died, he died young, in his will, which was really a way that you chose your successor, he nominated his first cousin, Lady Jane Grey, to become the Queen, because the other contender was Mary, who became Bloody Mary, okay, who wanted to bring the UK back under Catholicism. And Edward didn't want that happening, so he nominated Lady Jane Grey. Now, Mary believed she was the rightful Queen, and unfortunately at this time she was able to rally popular support and the military support that she needed, so she, she basically took the throne, and she took Lady Jane Grey and had her arrested for treason and put her in the Tower of London. However, she knew that Lady, Lady Jane was about 50, 16, probably at this time, 16 or 17, so she's very young still. Um, Mary didn't have her killed straight away because one of her chief Catholic advisers, a guy called uh, John Feckenham, had said, let me try and convert her back to Catholicism. 
you know, she's young, she's clearly been influenced by the people around her. Um, so he organized to go and visit with her three days before her execution, and they had a public debate. Okay, um, so this is one of the highest ranking Catholic advisors. Spiritual advisor to the Queen at this time, and this is a young 16 year old girl having a public theological debate about justification by faith in the sacraments. And you can read these debates, we have them, they're all transcribed, it's called the Feckenham Debates. There's just one little part of it I want you to read. So they, they talk about justification by faith, and she holds her own, in fact, she wins these debates basically. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge embarrassment for this Catholic priest. And he asks her, this is a qu- quote, John Feckenham says, How many sacraments are there? Okay. Now they believe there were seven in the Roman Catholic Church, okay? And she says two. There's baptism and the other sacrament of the Lord's Supper. She's absolutely right on that. That's why we have Lord's Supper and baptism in, in our church today. Feckenham says, no, there are seven. And then she says to him, by what scripture do you find that? Okay? Right there in that statement, we see the mind of Daniel, the mind of an ambassador. By what scripture are you... What is your authority for that, sir? She's basically saying. Is that coming from you, or is that coming from the word of God? If it's coming from the word of God, show me, and I'll accept it. And he says, we'll talk about that later. And he changed topics. That's how the debate goes on. A 16-year-old girl standing against the powerhouses of the nation that was in charge at that time, with her faith in the word of God, brought down this man and all that was going on behind her. What does it say in Acts 17.11? Remember that verse? It says, The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word of God with great eagerness and they examined it daily to see whether these things were so. They received what they were being taught but they checked it out against the word of God. Okay, What scripture find you for that? It's the Word of God. Again, I'm not, I hope I'm not overdoing this point, but this is the foundation of the Reformation. Daniel was a man of the Word. The Reformers were people of the Word. This is what we have. And this is the lesson. Let me tell you how that ended for her. <laughs> this did not please the Queen. <laughs> so the execution was set. She was brought up and they had, you know, they have publics, you know, they're usually done in a public square in the tower, near the Tower of London at this point. You're given a final speech and there's a bit of ceremony that you go through. This was her final speech, part of it. She said, I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman and that I do look to be saved by no other means but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. She's putting the boot in, obviously, to the debate because she was trying to be told that you're not saved only by the blood of Christ. That's her final words. She then knelt, 16-year-old girl, okay, about to be executed. She knelt in front of the audience and she had the entire audience recite with her by memory Psalm 51 that begins have mercy on me O God it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer of repentance and humbling her heart because she knew she was about to see the Lord she got up from that prayer she removed her gloves she removed her handkerchief she gave them to her ladies she took her prayer book she gifted it to the lieutenant in charge of the whole debacle she then went to the executioner and she said I, I forgive you for what you're about to do 
she was then blindfolded, she was made to kneel down, and there's a very kind of famous episode that happened where she loses her composure for a minute because she's blindfolded and she's put on the floor, and she's put on the floor too far away from the block where she's going to put her head, and she can't feel it, and she's wandering around like this, and she kind of loses her composure slightly, and she, she, she cries out, where is it, what do I do, what do I do? And obviously no one's really allowed to help someone unless you're kind of you party to that death then basically but it was this man John Feckenham who came and guided her hands to the block and she then put her head down on the block with her final words she repeated the words of her Lord into your hands I commend my spirit and she was in the presence of the Lord you see that is an ambassador who understood we think of those words tell Christ that I have behaved as he would have me behave. See, stories like that, they always get me. When the more and more you, you hear them like that, of what they did. It's the word of God. What scripture find you for that? It's Lady Jane Grey. Let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Try and finish on time for you. Daniel was a man of prayer. Let me, I'll read to you. We're running out of time, so I won't read all of this section. We'll read verses 4 and 5. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Okay. People were not happy that Daniel was doing so well in captivity. Okay? And these other rulers who were jealous of him, they wanted to get him out. This is now in the Persian. It's kind of changed. The empire's changed a little bit now. But um, they can't find any reason to accuse him. His conduct as an ambassador of Christ was so above board, no one could point a finger at him for doing something that he shouldn't have done. He says the only way they could find something against him was if they found it in relation to his God, because that's one area they knew he was never going to compromise. So they tricked the king into signing this law that people can only pray to God, uh, the Babylonian, you know, the Persian gods at this point. Okay, and what does Daniel do when he hears this law? Verses 10 and 11. Now therefore King Darius signed the document, and that became law. Verse 10 says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God, as he had done previously. Okay? He didn't care. Okay? The fact that the law had now been signed and it was illegal to pray to God meant nothing to him. In fact, he went straight up to his prayer chamber and he opened his windows for all to hear and he praised the God of Israel. That was Daniel. Okay, He was a man of God and he was a man of prayer. And notice it was a continual habit of prayer. He did it three times a day. And he opened his windows towards Jerusalem. They were instructed to pray towards Jerusalem. Again, prayer in obedience to the word of God. And it says he knelt. And there's something about kneeling. You see people kneel to the king, don't you? What do you do when you kneel? You're lowering yourself because you acknowledge that the one before you is a higher authority than you. We see that in the earthly realm. But when we do that in prayer, that's what we're acknowledging in the spiritual realm. Okay? Because we stand before the one when we pray. We get that privilege of coming into the throne room of God that no one is higher than God. He is the highest authority that ever existed. 
And that is why we kneel in prayer. Okay, if you haven't kneeled in prayer, I advise you do do it. It's a powerful thing to do. It's not just tradition. Okay, if you understand what it is, do it. It shows reverence for the one. Remember, Philippians 2. One day everyone will bow the knee to Christ. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will have to acknowledge at some point. Now right now we get the opportunity, we do that voluntarily, it's the joy of our life. Many people refuse to bow the knee to Christ now. One day it'll be too late for them, but they'll still be made to bow the knee to Christ to acknowledge his authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be in that day that his glory will cover the earth as the waters, as the sea covers the earth right now. It's the glory of the Lord. This was Daniel. This was prayer. It's a, it's a powerful thing. It says that prayer, this is a quote from a, an early first century church father, it says, Prayer has already divided seas and rolled up flowing rivers. It has made flinty rocks gush into fountains. It has quenched flames of fire. It has muzzled lions, disarmed vipers and poisoned, marshaled the stars against the wicked, stopped the course of the moon and arrested the sun in its race. It has burst open iron gates and recalled souls from eternity. It has conquered the strongest devils and commanded legions of angels down from heaven. On and on it goes, I won't read the whole quote. 1553, let's go back to the Reformation. Bloody Mary ascended to the throne of England. We've seen what she did to Lady Jane Grey. At this time there were some other people she wanted to deal with, to bring people back under the Catholic Church. There were two advisors to King Edward from the previous time, a guy called Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They were faithful servants in the Anglican Church at this time. First thing Mary did was to have these two people arrested, and she had them burned at the stake in Oxford in October the 16th, 1555, so just last week. As he was being tied to the stake, Nicholas Ridley prayed this. He says, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou have called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from her enemies. Latimer, Hugh Latimer, he encouraged Ridley, and he says these famous words, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. The faith they once died for was a faith that was then freely proclaimed. They did light that candle in England, and they did change the world in England. You can go to Oxford today and you can see the Martyr's Monument. People walk over it. This is where this happened. This is where the world was changed. This country was changed. Now let me ask the question, how is that flame today? Okay. Have we had that same passion for the Word of God? Have we upheld that? Are we that, are that passionate for releasing ourselves from captivity? Do we want to see the Word of God work? Do we see that authority? You see, in the church... There are great ambassadors like that, but the flame is more like an Olympic torch. It's carried from one generation to the next. That's why in the Bible you'll find so many admonitions to pass on the knowledge of God to the next generation, because if you don't get the next generation, they go into these schools. We read that quote earlier, and that's what happens. This is why it's so important. Let me read you a poem by C.T. Studd, a missionary. It's one of my favourite things. It says, Only one life and it will soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. And oh, how happy I'll be, Lord, if the light of my light is burned out for thee. 
Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life, and it will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Okay? The ambassador, he was an ambassador. He knew where he was doing, what kingdom he was representing. Let me share with you one more story of one Reformation hero, and then we'll close. This is a man named John Knox. Okay, so uh, the Oxford martyrs, they were down here. John Knox was a Scottish Reformation that was also taking root up, up in Scotland at this time. It's been said that John Knox's greatness lay in his humble dependence on his sovereign God to save a people, revive a nation and reform the church. So well known was the ministry of John Knox, his prayer ministry particularly, that it's said that Bloody Mary said that she fears the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Okay, What an impact this man must have had. Okay, He knew he was up against the Queen, that the, the people were being killed. But you see, John Knox, one of his famous beliefs and remarks was that one man with God is always in the majority. One man with God is always in the majority. And he had that famous prayer, okay, where he said, Give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. It makes me think of Paul's words, to live is Christ and to die is gain, in that sense. Give me Scotland or I die. Now let me ask, do we have that same passion in the UK? Give me the UK or I die. Give me the this is This is what it means to be an ambassador. We represent a heavenly kingdom and we do it for Christ and it's a high calling. We could get mission directors from no higher source or authority. We're all very aware of our own failings aren't we? Okay? We're reading the cherry-picked events of men who've done great things and women who've done great things. We're of no doubt that many other times they failed, but we know that the grace of God covers that. He's not looking for perfect life. All he's looking for is faithfulness and an acknowledgement that the Word of God, that's why it says in the Psalms, I have magnified my Word even above all my name. Okay? It's even above the name of God. Why? Because it testifies to the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was Jesus Christ. And he was the light of the world. How do we have a reformation? We understand our calling. We understand the word of God. We understand that we get our power from the spirit of God. This was the spirit of the reformation. One of the terms they had was sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. By scripture alone. By scripture alone. By faith alone. By grace alone. All these, the five solas as they called them. And it was these that set the captives free. The shackles of Rome were thrown off. It was these where Daniel survived through the captivities. And we know what happened. Remember, Israel gets brought back. We just studied it in the book of Nehemiah, didn't we? Ezra and Nehemiah. Brought back to the land of Israel. The temple is rebuilt. And we know one day there will still be another migration to the land of Israel where the future temple will be rebuilt and the king of kings will rule and reign and we really will have peace on this earth and there will be no more need for a reformation because everyone will know the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for those great lights that have gone before us that we can look at and have examples from, Lord. We pray that you would help us in our own lives, Lord, to follow them with their passion. Would you give us all that sense of calling and destiny of the high calling we have, Father? We thank you for it. We know your grace is sufficient. We know that you'll never send us anywhere, Lord, where you haven't got us in your hand. 
We pray now for our time together as we encourage one another in the body of Christ. Um, We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.